Hey guys, welcome back to Caffeine and Crime. Today I have season two, episode three for you guys, and today is going to be part one of Rodney Alcala, also known as the dating game killer. Thank you to everyone who has been listening to the serial killer season so far. If you guys have not checked it out yet, um, the last two weeks I have posted part one and part two of Ted Bundy, so I know it's a very... Um, popular case and you've probably heard so many people discuss it already if you are a true crime junkie, but it is there if you guys want to check it out and I did a whole lot of research on that one. I really hope that I can um, have enough research and this one for you guys. I felt like it was a little tricky because there's so much out there, but then it was crazy with this case of Rodney Alcala. Like every docu-series was like different or different internet searches that I did were like complete different. So I'm hoping that I've pieced everything together as well as I possibly can. I'm sorry if some things are errors. Although I had, you know, watched docu-series and research and stuff like that on this case, many years ago. Um, at the same time, like I didn't know all the details of this case or how many um, victims there were, anything. So this time going through it um, and figuring and like seeing all the details and reading all the details and stuff like that, there was a lot of stuff with this case that I actually didn't know before diving headfirst into it this time around. So I hope that I have pieced it together in a way where if there was parts that you haven't heard, you will hear today and next week, of course, because this is going to be another two-part um, serial killer. So let's go ahead and dive into part one. Rodney Alcala was born in San Antonio, Texas on August 23rd, 1943. I wanted to throw his birthday in this episode because I forgot to mention in part one of Ted Bundy, his birthday, and I, I have no idea why I forgot to mention it because I was like, this is crazy because if you are not aware, Ted Bundy was a Sagittarius and he was born on November 24th and that is literally my birthday, like acting like I'm the only one that has that birthday, but... It's just crazy when you see, like, your birthday linked to, like, a serial killer and, like, reading um, Liz's book about Ted Bundy and her talking about his birthday on the 24th and stuff like that. I'm just like, oh, it's just so eerie. Um, Rodney was born on August 23rd, 1943. And so this is another case that um, the killing era is in the 60s and 70s era. In 1951, his dad moved his family to Mexico and shortly after, I think it was about three years, he abandoned them. So Rodney's mother was left to raise him and his three siblings. And by the time he was 11, his mother moved them to California. In California, Rodney went through high school and he was very smart and very liked. When he was 17 in 1960, he joined the U.S. Army as a clerk, but in 1964, he had a complete mental breakdown and quit. He hitchhiked home from the base he was at, and he was later seen by a doctor that diagnosed him with severe antisocial personality disorder. This was enough for him to be discharged from the Army. He then went to UCLA School of Fine Arts and graduated with his bachelor's in 1968. He continued to have a passion for the arts of photography. And in 1968, after getting his bachelor's, he was 25 years old and living in L.A. Around this time, a motorist in L.A. called the police to let them know he saw a man lure a little girl who was walking to school into his car. This motorist followed this car until he seen this man pull up to an apartment and take the little girl inside. 
When the police got there, they banged on the door with no response. When they finally started yelling to open up where they were coming in, a man with a fierce look opened the door just so you could see his face claiming he was trying to take a shower and said he needed to get dressed. The police told him, you have 10 seconds, and that, and when that time ran out, the cop was forced to kick down the door. Inside, what no one wanted to find was an 8-year-old girl named Tally Shapiro, and I'm hoping I'm pronouncing her last name uh, right, but her name was Tally. She was found in a pool of blood on the kitchen floor. Alongside her was her w white Mary Jane shoes and a steel bar that was used to strangle her unconscious. The man had gone out the back way and was gone. After the first search through the home, the cops circled back to the kitchen where he realized Tally was moving. Rushed to the hospital, she had been raped and beaten so bad, but survived her attack. At the apartment, police found photos of underage girls and photos and an ID of a Rodney Alcala. People that knew Rodney said he wouldn't harm a fly, and all traces of Rodney were gone, and the trail of this case went cold. Rumors went wild that Rodney had fled to Canada, or that Rodney had fled to Mexico, and so on and so forth with those. But every lead went nowhere. By the next year, in 1969, Rodney was placed on the FBI Most Wanted list. It wasn't until 1971 that two girls were at their local post office when they saw their camp counselor on the FBI Most Wanted list that was hung up. But he had a different name, Rodney Alcala. They called it in to authorities, and the camp counselor, Rodney Alcala, was arrested. But he was going by a different name. He was going by the name John Berger. He was living in New York and even gotten into film school at NYU from 1968 to 1971. And yes, he was also a camp counselor for an all-girl camp. But at the camp, he spelled his name with a U instead of an E. So like an actual burger, like such an original name. While attending NYU, he studied under Roman Polanski for photography. And around this time, 23-year-old Transworld Airlines flight attendant Cornelia Crilly was found raped and strangled in her Manhattan apartment. A bite mark was discovered on her left breast. During this time, there was nothing to really lead investigators to a killer because of the lack of technology. But now to August of 71, when the two girls called in that they had seen that their camp counselor was on the FBI most wanted list, Rodney Callow was arrested and questioned for Tally's case. Rodney said, oh, I want to forget about that and not talk about it. Rodney Alcala did that, as if he was no longer Rodney Alcala. Now that they had this SOB that hurt an innocent eight-year-old girl, it was time to charge him. What was standing in their way was the fact that after Tally's attack, her parents had moved her to Mexico in hopes of her being able to start her life over and start fresh away from the darkness that was Rodney Alcala. With them being out of the country, they weren't able to do much besides a plea deal with Rodney. And in that same year, Rodney Alcala pleaded guilty to a lesser charge of child molestation. He faced one year to life and was in prison until 74, which was just only 34 months in prison. He was able to charm everyone in his life, and that is believed to be why he got out so soon. The U.S. justice system was largely focused on rehabilitating criminals. But just after two months on parole, Alcala told a 13-year-old girl he would give her a ride to school. So she got in his car. But instead, he drove around and offered her marijuana. 
She finally was able to get away and went to the police right away and told them that she was kidnapped. He was not charged with kidnapping, though, but spent another two years in prison for breaking his parole and providing marijuana to a minor. He was sent back to prison from 74 to 77. Not sure how there wasn't enough to put him away after, one, raping and beating a little girl, leaving her to die. And if the police hadn't gotten there, Tally wouldn't have been alive. But also, kidnapping a little girl and no telling what was going to be her fate. But he still was released. Right after being released, he moved right on with his life and even got a job with the Los Angeles Times in 1977 as a typesetter. He also would take photos for weddings. He was a registered sex offender, plus had a charge for drugs. But those things, they never looked up because it was such a charming person. In 1978... Ellen Jane Hover's remains were found on the grounds of Rockefeller Estate in Westchester County. The 23-year-old had disappeared 11 months previously in July of 1977. Ellen was a gifted pianist and incredibly smart, with plans to go to medical school. On the 15th of July of 1977, Ellen had written John Berger in her diary. She planned to meet him for lunch that day and was never seen again. A number of eyewitnesses said that they had seen Ellen talking to a man outside of her apartment in the days leading up to her disappearance, as well as the day she disappeared. Her friend questioned her about who the freaky-looking guy was, to which she replied, Oh, he's alright. He's a photographer. This freaky-looking guy was also seen around Rockefeller Estate around the time Ellen disappeared. At the time, Alcala was questioned by police about Ellen's disappearance and refused a polygraph. However, at that point, they didn't have a body and the investigation was stalled. An 18-year-old girl, Jill Barkholm, who just three weeks previously had moved from New York to California, was found in a ravine off Mulholland Dr Highway in November of 1977. She was thought to be a victim of the Hillside Strangler at the time. 27-year-old registered nurse Georgia Wickstead found in her Malibu apartment in December of 1977 murdered. It was murder after murder, and around this time, Alcala was actually interviewed by the Hillside Stranglers Task Force. I've also read somewhere that around this time, he was also incarcerated, once again, for a marijuana possession. It literally drives me insane that this man is being, like, locked up um, for a year here and there for marijuana, yet he's literally out raping and murdering people. And all the clues, I mean, are right there in front of their faces, but it's like, I get that they don't have much to go by. They don't have a lot of technology with DNA and, you know, different things like that. But it's like, oh my God, like you keep locking this guy up. I mean, I guess it's great that he's locked up for the time being so that he can't be out doing God awful things, but yeah, let's put him away for marijuana. The crazy part about this, as I had said, that he is also known as the dating game killer, and I'm sure you guys are aware of this too, that he was the contestant on the actual game show, The Dating Game. This was a very cheesy 60s, 70s era TV show, and very cheesy and cringy, let me just say that, but um, yeah, he was a contestant, and he was introduced as a successful photographer who got his start when his father found him in the dark room at the age of 13, fully developed. Creepy. Um, he was introduced as Rodney Alcala. He actually didn't go by John Berger. 
Um, He claimed his nickname was Banana and that he looked really good. When the woman asked what his best time was, he said the best time was at night and that she would have a good time. He actually won when the woman claimed she liked bananas, so she would take number one, also known as Rodney Alcala. You can find the dating game episode that he was on on YouTube, of course. You can find pretty much everything there. But I'm going to be linking it in my blog if it's a little bit easier for you guys to find there with some other stuff that I usually put in my true crime blog. But um, for those that aren't really aware of like the dating game, it literally is just like a quick run of The Bachelor with less people. So you have like the girl on one side of a wall, but they can't see. So it's kind of like a mixture of The Bachelor, Love is Blind. You got the three guys on one side, and then there's like a divider wall, and then you got the girl on the other side, and she just asks questions, and they have to answer. And by the end of the show, she picks which one is the perfect fit for her. And it's like live audience. So yeah, she picked Rodney Alcala. After the show, she canceled the date with him because whoever wins agrees to go on a date with each other. But she actually canceled the date and later claimed after meeting him, she got a very bad vibe from him, was creeped out, and who knows what what would have happened to her if she went on that date. But one of the other contestants on the show that sat next to Rodney said that before the show started, Rodney got in his face, pointed at him, and said sternly, I always get the girl. Ugh. Just such a creep. What a lot of people are just kind of like, what the fuck about is the fact that this guy was already a convicted sex offender, but he still was placed on this show to get a woman. Around the time that he was on the dating game, 32-year-old legal secretary Charlotte Lamb was found murdered in the laundry room of an apartment building in El Segundo in June of 1978. In the spring of 1979, Huntington Beach, California, Robin Samso, who was 12 years old, played with her best friend every chance they had. On June 20th, 1979, was going to be Robin's first day answering phone calls at the dance ballet studio in exchange for ballet lessons. She had a few hours to spare, so before she left, she asked her best friend Bridget if she wanted to hang out. When she got to Bridget's house, Bridget said, let's go have a cartwheel competition at the beach. They got to the beach close to 3 p.m. As soon as they got to the beach, a man with dark hair approached them and told them that he was in a photography class and asked to take pictures of them. He said it was a contest. Robin was so excited and agreed for the both of them. But thankfully, a neighbor of Bridget's walked up and asked the girls if they were okay, if everything was all right. Rodney turned his head down and took off. Now the girls were a little scared about the situation, so they decided it was time to go. They walked back up to Bridget's house, and by the time they got there, Bridget told Robin to take her bike and to not stop until she got home or to ballet. Robin never made it to work. She never made it home, and her ballet teacher called her family and said she never made it to class. The family called 911, and her brothers got on their bikes and went everywhere looking for her. The police asked Bridget, and she said, the man that took our pictures. She had a strange feeling about it. Bridget helped a sketch artist compose a sketch of this man. And I will also include that sketch in my blog. The blog is always linked down below in the description if you guys are interested. 12 days later, Robin was found in the foothills of the San Gabriel Mountains. Her mother requested to see her, but they didn't let her because she was in such bad shape that you couldn't even recognize her. 
Robin was found 40 miles from where she was last seen in a grassy foothill area. There wasn't much to go off of since her remains weren't much but bones. All they had was the sketch, and they put it out in the media right away. In June of 1979, 21-year-old Jen Parento, um, who worked as a computer program key puncher operator, was found dead in her Burbank apartment. Somewhere around this time, Rodney Alcala's parole officer noticed the sketch in the media about this photographer man. And he called the detectives on Robin's case and told them to look into Rodney Alcala because of the sketch. And also the fact that there was another little girl um, from Rodney's past that he had hurt. Rodney was easy to find this time living with his mom and... Would you know it? It was very close to the location where Robin's body was found. Rodney's girlfriend, Beth, talked highly of Rodney. They had just met in the spring of 79, around the time of Robin's disappearance. They both enjoyed photography. She said at the time the pictures that she had seen of girls ages 12 to 30 from him weren't alarming to her. It was just photography. They had went on a weekend getaway around that time when Robin disappeared, and she couldn't say where he was that exact day, the 20th. He had no alibi because no one that knew him knew where he was that day. He was arrested on July 21st, 1979 for suspicion of Sam So kidnap and murder. They had to really work up a case. He denied being the photographer at the beach that day. They were running out of ways to prove it was him when they got a tip. Rodney's sister, Christine, went to visit him in jail. The conversation was recorded. Rodney mentioned that he had a storage locker that the cops didn't know about. He told her to get there and clear it out. The detectives were already one step ahead of him when finding a receipt from the storage locker at his apartment from the search they conducted after his arrest. Inside the storage unit, they recovered hundreds, thousands of photos of different girls, kids, teens, adults, regular shots, and sexual shots as well. These were moved to this storage unit right after Robin's remains were found. No photos of Robin were found, but one photo of a woman on roller skates caught their eye. The area was Sunset Beach, very close to where the young girls were that Rodney had denied being at. Police put the photo in the media asking for the identity of her and she was found. She was only 15 years old. She said that her and her friend were at Sunset Beach and saw a man with a camera. First, he said he worked for a magazine, and then he said it was a photo contest. She thought being in a magazine would be so cool, so she let him photograph her. When she got home, she wrote about in her diary with the date, June 20th, the very same day Robin and Bridget were seen with the same man at the beach. Two other 16-year-old girls came forward and said the same man asked to take photos and had even asked them to get in the car with him, but they denied. Even though they basically knew it was him, they had no proof. They never found the bike she was riding, and they had no physical evidence to link the two. They had to go back to the storage unit items and dig for anything. That is when a silk bag filled with women's earrings was found. Robin's mother identified a pair of gold ball studs that were hers, and she said Robin often borrowed them. Rodney had claimed previously that they were earrings from his sister, but they were now being looked at as trophies. I talked about trophies in season one. I can't remember exactly what episode that was, but um, it was the episode of Shannon Siders. I believe it was maybe episode six of season one um, about her classroom kind of being a trophy in a way. It's so sick and just twisted, disturbing. 
But that's kind of what these police officers are thinking when looking at this bag filled of earrings. Other reasonings they had against him was the change of his hair to change his appearance for the sketch. So once the sketch of him was out in the media, he cut off his hair and he was known for like this long curly hair. Again, photos will be in the blog, but um, I'm sure you guys are also aware of what Rodney Alcala looks like if you guys do know this case. He had also changed the carpet in the back of his car. He ripped it all out and had new carpet placed in. And he told his girlfriend that he was trying to get the smell of spilled gasoline out of the back of the car. In February of 1980, one year after Robin's murder, Rodney went on trial for it. Within two and a half months, there were at least 50 witnesses who testified. It was a very long, drawn-out trial. The jury convicted him and sentenced him to death for Robin Samso's murder. Robin's mother spoke and said, It's a poor exchange for my daughter's life, but maybe it will save another person's child with him being gone. In 1984, his conviction was overturned by California Supreme Court, saying he got an unfair trial because jurors weren't told of his previous sex offenses. It's just, it's crazy. In 1986, he was tried again, and he was convicted and sentenced to death for Robin Samso's murder again. In 1994, his book that he had published called You, the Jury, he claimed in this book that he was innocent of the Robin Samso case. He also wrote about how he was mistreated by the prison workers. He wasn't getting the diet he wanted, and, and at one point, he had fallen, and he said it was somebody tripping him which, I'm, I mean, could be the case. I feel like it would be kind of hard to not mistreat someone like that. In 2001, yes, we are at 2001. Once again, it was overturned by the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit because a witness was not allowed to support what Rodney had contended that a park ranger that had found Robin's body had been hypnotized by police and investigators. Robin's mother showed up and said, we have went through a lot of hell because of that animal. A lot of hell. And I'm going to leave you guys here for this part. Make sure you guys jump over to my Instagram at Caffeine Crime Podcast to stay up to date on episodes. Part two will be coming next Tuesday for you guys. And yeah, let me know what you guys think over there. Also, don't forget to check out the blog because I'll have links and photos and all that kind of stuff. And if you guys noticed anything missing from this case, like I have said before, make sure you reach out to me. If you want to message me over on Instagram, that would be great. And I will add it to the blog for all of us to see. But yeah, like always, give me a rating. Let me know what you think of my podcast. But I will see you guys next week with season two, episode four, Rodney Akala part two.